Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are practically the same. But for minor differences in our trek through the second book of Psalms, we've come to Psalm 53, but we may as well look at Psalm 14, which is in book one. And we haven't started book one yet, but this knocks one of them out of the way, right? A world of fools. You'll note in this psalm verses that are repeated in the New Testament. Psalm 14 was written earlier. Psalm 53 written later, both written by David, both addressing a similar issue but one being written later would, was slightly revised under the inspiration of the Lord uh, to give us the 53rd Psalm. But we're going to look at them together because they are so close together. And I simply call this, this message a world of fools. And I think you'll see why. Atheism and the consequences of atheism. For the conductor of David, that is a writing of David, a song of David, the fool said in his heart, There is no Elohim. Let me stop there. In uh, down in the 14th uh, Psalm, the personal name, the covenant name Yahweh is introduced. It is not seen, however, in the other Psalm. Both of them, though, start out by addressing the one who is Elohim. Now, that term for God in the in the sequence of, of the scriptures that we have is uh, the first term for God in the Bible, Elohim. It is generally translated God. It's actually in the plural Elohim. El is one, Elohim is two, Elohim is three or more. That's interesting, but the modifying pronoun is always a singular, single, singular pronoun, he. Elohim, he. So it's a, it's a Hebraistic reference when it refers to the creator. It is, it is a Hebraistic reference to the great triune God, Elohim. The fool said in his heart, there is no Elohim. All right, so the term Elohim would be the general term for Almighty God, God, the true and living God, who, who is pluralic in majesty in that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he is one God, he, Elohim, he. The fool has said in his heart, in other words, this is the pursuit 
of his life's belief. There is no Elohim. So when you use the term, when you consider the term Elohim, that is, there is no creator. Because that's the name, that's the first term used of God, and it is seen in, in the act of creation. In Genesis 1, there is no God. Uh, being the reference to the creator means that uh, nothing is created, and so obviously an atheist just, I guess, believes things are random, just happen. In, in a modern sense, that's what people think. Uh, and I don't know what was in the minds of people, but it's always been there. People who try their best to deny the existence of God. Now, there's one God. This is the great God. This, that term is used before he ever reveals his covenant name, Yahweh. It isn't until after man turns up on the scene that, uh, and, and there's a communication to man that, that God in the English translation becomes Lord God, which Elohim becomes Yahweh Elohim. So his personal name, his personal covenant name is withheld or it is not revealed until after he creates man. And then he becomes a personal God. So this is not referencing a personal God at this point, And it's that way in both uh, of the Psalms. Uh, it, is, it is a reference to the highest of all authorities and powers, God. The fool says he doesn't exist. He's not there. The fool said in his heart, there is no Elohim. Here's what happens in the course of that belief when it runs its course. Number one, they deal corruptly. That's uh, like spoiled. It's like spoiled meat. It's, it's ruinous. So they become corrupt. Nothing good can come out of that. It can only decay. It can never smell sweet or be productive. It can only be bad and destructive. That's the first result. The second is they have committed abominable deeds. And then the third one is no one does good. So this is the, um, this is the doctrine of the depravity of man. That man left alone pursues his own desires and lusts and goals and whatever. And it, it spoils. It can never, it can never turn to, into anything good. Never. It never can. And it can never do anything that's good. It can only do bad things. And then the people who follow that path are incapable of doing anything good. They are enslaved to their uh, fallen nature. And so that nature continues to lead them down a, a path that can only spiral downward. And only but for the grace of God and the, and the intervention of God 
can it turn around? So this is natural man. Uh, this is the, the state of fallen man. This is how he must be. In his fallen state, he can't know God. So he has to deny God. And then his life and his society, his culture, everything about him goes darker and darker and deeper into ruin. So this is, this is the, uh, the nature of fallen man. Now, that blue's hard to see. Isn't it? Psalm 53 starts out like this. For the conductor, O Machalat, a mascal of David. Mascal is a song. It's an instructive, contemplative song. Machalat is an interesting word that many conservative scholars and rabbis in, in millennia gone by translate disease. So here is how he introduces his psalm in Psalm 53. It is a song, an instructive song of the disease of man. Okay? Now that, that's only used in one other place in the Psalms. So it's used here, of course, in Psalm 53. He didn't use it in Psalm 14. But he does here because as time has passed and as the psalmist has matured and then he becomes, you know, he, he becomes far more acquainted with the way of life. He's even more cognizant of the disease of man that is his fallen nature, sin. The fool said in his heart, there is no Elohim. Same way, same thing. And same consequences. They have dealt corruptly. Little change right here. They have committed abominable injustice. So what is, okay, if you compare the middle, if you compare the middle statement here, the second consequence with this up here in Psalm 14, they commit abominable deeds, but the world agrees with those abominable deeds and therefore there can be no justice for righteousness. Because injustice is a, is a fruit of a poison tree. It's poison fruit. So abominable works are, produce abominable injustice. And no one does good. Now, you know, we can see here in our modern society, right? Um... Our culture becomes darker and darker, our nation and, in the, and the world as well. And in that darkness, reject God. There is no God. There is no Elohim. There is no creator. There is no supreme being. This is what happens to that culture, to that society. They become corrupt, decayed. The sin that is part of their nature continues to eat away at them. And the decay becomes stronger and more far-reaching. 
such that it grows into society and society becomes an abominable society performing abominable deeds and those who would correct the society and try to correct the abomination are the ones that are considered to be unjust. And so those corrupt people who deal corruptly and who commit the abominable deeds will not accept any correction and therefore um, judge the others and it's an, an abominable injustice. So in that decaying society, there is no justice for the righteous. And then finally, no one does good. It continues to spread to every level and it reaches out into all parts of society and culture until, if you think of modern culture, until the religion is corrupted, the education system is corrupted, the political system is corrupted, the financial system, anything that has to do with the world is corrupted. It's decayed. And its decay gets more ruinous and everything about it, the religion, the politics, the uh, academia, the education system, everything about it turns itself on anything that comes against it. And so then the abominable deeds become abominable injustice. And this is how the view of the psalmist has grown from Psalm 14 to Psalm 53, an instructive song about the disease of man, the great disease of man, his fallen state. If God did not reach out into his creation and choose those whom he would bless and call his own, then this path of destruction would be irreversible and we wouldn't have come along this far, I'm sure. It wouldn't have gotten past the pre-flood world or even past the generation of Cain and Abel. But God intervenes graciously and his people have this instruction. And so we're to reflect, okay, let's take the other side of this coin. The flip side is this. We are going to have to cling to the truth of the existence of God and all that is God, creation, authority, all power, a God of righteousness and justice, a God who calls and keeps his own. And in that we would stand faithfully and in his strength, and he would become our fortress, and he would become our rock, and he then would be our protector, and we can see that at least a remnant of society is preserved by the power of God. So believing in that, except if you believe him, you believe his word, the true and living God, then that means you'll do your best not to deal corruptly, not to commit abominable deeds and to try your best to do good, to do that which is good. Well, the world, of course, must come against that and must try to destroy it. 
And this is the story of existence ever since the, ever since the, the creation and fall of man. But next there's universal depravity. We've talked about here the fallen nature of man, but consider this. Yahweh in heaven looked down upon the sons of men to see whether there is a man of understanding, a man of teachable wisdom who seeks Elohim. Now he's far above man, you see. He looks down on us. All have turned away. Together they have spoiled. No one does good, not even one. Now, of course, you see that in Romans. I mean, no one does good, not a single one. Everybody is born with this depraved nature, universal depravity. Doesn't matter what tribe or nation or whatever someone comes from. Every single individual of the human race is born, is conceived in sin and born in sin. Just like David said in the 51st Psalm. In sin, I was conceived. My fallen nature is something that I cannot help. If I was born into the human race, I was born with a depraved nature. And there is no limit to the depravity that I can commit in my life. There's no limit to it unless God arrests me and unless God intervenes in my life. Otherwise, there's no limit to how far down I can go and how dark I can be in my heart. There's no limit to it. So what happens? Yahweh looks down. Yeah, he said this really after the after the, the flood, he said he saw that man's heart was only to do evil continually. This is the heart of man apart from the grace of God. All right? He doesn't have a teachable spirit. None of them are understanding. They don't seek Yahweh. The same thing is said by Paul to the Romans. It's a quote of this. No one seeks God. It is God who comes after us. It is God who seeks us. We don't have the willingness. We don't have the ability in depravity to seek after God. So here it is. The psalmist makes it plain. They can't understand because they're slaves to their nature. And therefore they cannot seek Elohim of themselves. All have turned away. Together they have spoiled no one does good, not even one, not a single one. Now here's how it is said in the 53rd Psalm. Elohim looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see whether there is a man of understanding who seeks Elohim. Same thing. They are all uh, dross. That means they are all, it's a different kind of word. Up here they have spoiled. Down here it's, it's a dross that is waste, it's useless. The dross, dross is the waste material. You know, when uh, gold is refined, gold has to be subjected to heat 
ore is extracted from the earth and there's gold in there, but clinging to the gold are, are rocks and other stuff that are worthless and useless. And so the ore has to be subjected to great heat. Gold has a low melting point. So gold begins to trickle out and gold is purified from the rest of it. And here's gold that is pure. And what is left is dross. It's useless. It's just worthy of being cast away. Now this is, apart from the grace of God, what the race of man is. They are all dross, waste, useless. Together they have spoiled and no one does good, not even one. So to the reference to dross is added to an older, from an older, wiser King David here, addressing another time, another age in the culture of his people. This was one instruction, but there needs to be a little bit refinement of, of refinement from the inspired psalmist. Dross, not worth a thing, only to be cast away. So then here is the, is the reality of sin and the consequences of sin. First of all, in Psalm 14. Did not all the workers of iniquity know? Those who devoured my people partook of a feast. They did not call upon Yahweh. Now here's the introduction to Yahweh, covenant people. Here's the introduction to the intervention of the grace of God and the call of God to those who are his elect and only God knows who they are, but they come to him and now the world attacks them and they consider the people of God like bread to eat. Workers of iniquity don't know this because they did not call upon Yahweh. There they were in great fear for Elohim is in the generation of a righteous man. Where is the salvation from God the peace, the security, the understanding, the peace of heart, those are found in the generation that pursues righteousness. And that, righteous, that generation exists because of a call upon Yahweh. So the other side is seen here. Evil people did not call upon Yahweh, but God's people did, which puts others in great fear for Elohim is in the generation of a righteous man. So a generation perhaps carefully protecting the belief in God, the teaching of God to, to carefully guard his word, to be sure that it's taught from one generation to the next, just like God told Israel to do. Those people, you remember the law when we went through Leviticus and, and, and God said, you don't eat this stuff and you don't do this. And when you find certain things that look like leprosy or nastiness or whatever, then you're supposed to do this. 
And then you do a ritual of cleansing and then you come and you're approved because you're not like the Canaanites into whose land you're going. You're not like them. You're holy and a separate people. So, so the people of God have a sense of holiness and separation that only God can instruct us in and, and, and give to us. Had the Israelites never received the law like that, they would have never understood that the horrific things that were being practiced by the Canaanites were actually an abomination to God. They wouldn't have known that. God had to teach them these things. Well, so here's a generation of righteous people. You put to shame the counsel of the poor for Yahweh is his refuge. So what do the workers of iniquity do? They try to shame the teaching of God's people. See, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's another way to look at that because in these days, people say, the fool has said in his heart, there is a God. Here, the workers of iniquity seek to shame the counsel of the poor because Yahweh is his refuge. What makes him so strong? What gives him this sense of peace and security? Yahweh, his refuge. Yahweh, this is what. So they're going to, they're going to attack that. And, you know, the attack on the scriptures came early in the history. Uh, the attack on the church came early in the history of the church. Uh, way, way back in the earliest of the first two generations, books were actually invented, the concept of a book, where you have papers bound at an edge that is called a codex in the Latin language. And what the Christians would do is they would, they would take the parchments and they would separate them equally they didn't want to have to carry around a, 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 a wheelbarrow full of parchments. And so they would, they would carefully divide the parchments and bind them at the end and, and make a book. And uh, the early Christians, the early Greek Hellenic philosophers told their disciples to attack that book. Everywhere the Christians were making a difference in the Greek society, they always referenced that book and the teachings in that book, Porphyry and Plotatus, for example. The disciple says to his master in Hellenic philosophy, they're taking over the world. Well, let's find ways to attack that book. Whatever's in that book, we'll use it. We'll seek to use it and attack it to their shame. Well, this is the trick here that he speaks of. You put to shame the counsel of the poor, the teaching of those. For Yahweh is his refuge. Now here's how fits third Psalm. Did not the workers of iniquity know those who devoured my people partook of a feast? They did not call upon Elohim. Yahweh up here, Elohim down here. There were, there they were in great fear there was never such fear for Elohim 
scattered the bones of those who camp around you. You have put them to shame for Elohim rejected them. It's a little stronger language down here from an inspired older psalmist who says Elohim took care of us. You see, you don't get away with attacking the word of God like that. It just doesn't happen. Um, people, that, that society will collapse. Those people in that society who have sought to destroy the word of God, the belief in God, the concept of God, whatever. That culture can't stand because it feeds upon itself. An atheistic society may live like a flash in the pan for just a brief span of a moment. But because of the nature of its utter depravity, it collapses in its own spoil, um, in its own rottenness, its own decay. It, just, it, can, it can never go past a certain point. And it's because of the spirit of God who is so powerful and works so, uh, in such a great way through the lives of his people. So Elohim scattered the bones of those who camp around you. You have put them to shame for Elohim rejected them. Elohim rejected them. We live in a society today where, where darkness is growing ever darker and the spoil and the stench of the decay is reaching into every level of our culture, into every part of our culture. It reaches into the minds of older people and middle-aged people and young people and students and children. And, and the society is bombarded with everything but the understanding and the teaching of God. And so those who try to maintain that teaching become the ones in that culture who are unjust. Remember, abominable injustice. And so it seems that those people would gain the upper hand, but it cannot continue that way. Finally, that society collapses. Elohim scatters their bones, puts them to shame. Elohim rejected them. It's going to happen here sooner or later. It'll happen. This is the word of God. We, we're, we're already imploding from within our, so we, you know, we just, we don't have an understanding. We're in utter darkness. We don't understand logic or, or reason as a culture. We, 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 uh, we fight against the most basic elements of humanity. It can't, it can't stand that way because Elohim will reject it ultimately. Elohim will reject. So then finally, a longing for salvation. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. That's Jesus. When Yahweh returns the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice. Israel shall be glad. Now, the Babylonian captivity doesn't happen until quite some time after King David. This is not that captivity. This is the captivity of the soul. This is the captivity of, uh, of corruption, uh, of the abominable injustice of, of those who never do good. When Yahweh returns the captivity of his people... So how are his people released from the utter depravity of the world? Yahweh does it. He sends it from Zion. He sends it out from his place. 
and he, he, he brings back, Jacob will rejoice. I can't read it. When Elohim returns to captivity, when he turns it over, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. And of course, that's a reference to the people of God. And it is seen both in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So we live in a world of fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. My daddy would whip me if I ever called anybody a fool because the Bible says don't call anybody a fool. And he took the Bible very literally as well he should have. So I could never, I could, fool was a bad word when I was a kid. You just don't say the word fool. But the concept of a fool, a senseless, brain dead individual. You know, like a chicken with a head cut off, dead, don't know it yet. Is a reference to those who say in their hearts, there is no God. And then this spiral downward of corruption and decay and destruction until Yahweh rejects them and they're utterly gone and their bones are scattered as the psalmist says. So it gives us an understanding of the world in which we live. It gives us great faith to know that finally Yahweh Elohim is victorious and the importance of maintaining a relationship with God, maintaining a sense of righteousness as defined in the scriptures and to teach it from one generation to, to the next, the reality of God, the power of God, the salvation of God, the righteousness of God, which preserves our, our children, their children, the society in which we live. Well, we'll stop there. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, thank you for the great wisdom of your word. I pray, O oh God, that you will embed within our very existence the strong truths and principles that are given to us there. Use us in these last days where corruption and darkness seem so strong and widespread. And help us to faithfully rest upon the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.